Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an apostrophe podcast production. is We Regret to Inform You, The Rejection Podcast. I was queen of the B-plus pictures. It was very limiting, and I was really stuck. Lucille Ball. In the winter of 1915, tragedy struck the city of Detroit. Cases of typhoid fever started popping up in the area, and public health authorities issued stern warnings, urging citizens to boil their water and stay away from certain foods. A local woman, a wife and mother named Desiree, adhered strictly to these government warnings to protect her family. But just one week later, her husband Henry developed a fever of 104. Without a cure or a vaccine, the family was forced into quarantine. A sign saying, keep out, was nailed to their front door, and the family became increasingly isolated. Neighbors locked their doors and windows and drew their curtains in fear, until Henry eventually succumbed to the illness. The now-widowed Desiree had no professional skills or insurance and was now saddled with raising her two children alone. 
even after her husband's funeral, neighbors weren't comfortable approaching the recently quarantined home to offer their condolences for fear the bacteria still lingered. So Desiree enlisted the help of a local grocer called Mr. Flower. He agreed to let Desiree's four-year-old daughter put on recitals in his store, prancing up and down the counter and singing songs her mother and father had taught her. That way, local customers could drop a few pennies into a jar to help the bereaved family, from a distance, which the little girl gleefully accepted. It was Lucille Ball's very first performance. Over the following years, the family moved out of their Detroit home, and Lucille Ball bounced around the houses of several family members, living with her aunt and uncle or her grandparents until her mother eventually remarried, and the family settled in Jamestown in upstate New York. It was a tumultuous period. Each family member had vastly different views on child-rearing, none of which aligned with Ball's best interests. Not to mention, she was still wrestling with grief. But between those cracks in her foundation grew something unexpected. A sense of humor. Ball says she discovered the quickest and easiest way to please the adults in her life was to make them laugh. And the principal of her school took notice. He saw to it that Ball be given parts in school plays and musicals where she could express herself through acting, singing, and dancing. Then, one night, her stepfather took her to a local entertainment venue to see a one-man show. With nothing in front of him but a light bulb and a glass of water, the performer did impressions for hours, holding the entire audience in the palm of his hand. She watched intently as his voice, his intonation, and his stories could make people laugh, then cry, then laugh again. It was a gift, and she said that day, her life changed forever. Ball started performing more and more. She auditioned for a chorus line at a local Shriners convention, and the 12-year-old was cast. After her first performance on that stage, she says two things permeated her soul. The energy of performance and the assurance of applause. Soon, she founded a musical group with two friends called the Gloom Chasers Union. One friend was the conductor, another played piano, and Ball played the drums. But they quickly learned that instruments weren't exactly their forte, so they decided to pivot the group added two more members and turned themselves into an acting troupe. They borrowed furniture from their parents to make sets, drew homemade tickets, and sold them to the neighborhood for a quarter apiece. The principal of their school let them have the gym certain evenings, and they put on comedy shows. With that momentum, Ball auditioned for local plays. One Jamestown critic even compared her to silent film star Jean Eagles. She says she was struck by the lightning of show business, and that's when she decided to take it one step further. She had a resume full of amateur productions. Now she needed formal training. And where better to learn her craft than the Broadway? Way? 
While Ball may have lived in New York State, she was still a good 400 miles outside of Manhattan. Compared to Jamestown, it may as well have been the other side of the world. But she could feel the overture calling. So her mother discovered the Robert Minton John Murray Anderson School of Drama on East 58th Street. It boasted impressive alumni and equally impressive tuition fees. But sensing her daughter's passion, Ball's mother and stepfather pooled their pennies. They called in a favor with a few friends of friends that lived in the city to take their daughter in. And young Lucille Ball was off to Manhattan with $50 sewn into her underwear. Drama school offered a variety of courses, including playwriting, costume design, musical comedy, and motion picture acting. Courses that, for a student like Lucille Ball, blew math and science out of the water. But there was another part of the curriculum she was totally unprepared for. Humiliation. Ball was mocked endlessly by her teachers for her Midwestern accent. So much so that she stopped raising her hand in class altogether. When it came time for dance courses, she was relieved, thinking she could let her body do the talking. But she was told she had two left feet. Then it got worse. A new student arrived, and she stole the spotlight in a way even the instructors had never seen before. Her name was Betty Davis. Ball's personality was swallowed whole by insecurity, and she drifted effortlessly into the background. By the end of her first semester, her teacher penned a letter home to her parents. It said, Lucille Ball was too shy and reticent to put her best foot forward, adding, quote, she's wasting her time and ours. Ball said all she learned in drama school was how to be frightened. Ball returned to her parents' house feeling rejected and embarrassed. In Jamestown, she was a star. She could dance circles around the local girls. But in Manhattan, she was but a small fish, eclipsed by the light of every other small-town star. She threw herself into cheerleading and basketball at her high school, any distraction she could find. It worked for a little while. But no matter how hard she tried to dim her big Broadway dreams, they never quite extinguished. So one day, instead of hopping onto the school bus, she hopped the Greyhound. Almost exactly one year since her first trip to New York City. And she decided to prove her drama school teachers wrong. As the city skyline approached, she practiced her enunciation, and she flipped through the newspaper looking for open calls and auditions. It was the 1920s. Musical theater was at its peak, and every show lighting up the Great White Way needed chorus girls. What she really wanted to do was vaudeville, a popular comedic theatrical piece that often combined pantomime, dialogue, dancing, and song. But in the meantime, she figured becoming a showgirl would be a great way to get her foot in the door. Little did she know, it wouldn't be quite so easy. As Ball showed up to audition after audition, she was rejected on the spot. 
Turns out, fancy Broadway casting directors want chorus girls with actual dancing experience. Go figure. All she had on her post-it-sized resume was a Shriners convention and a failed stint at drama school. If she did manage to make it through the audition process, it wouldn't be long before she was found out. After two weeks, one producer told her she was cut. Another kept her on for five weeks before giving her the boot. Yet another told her she was a nice kid, but that she just didn't have it. Then added, why don't you just go back home and raise a big family? The $50 her mother had sewn into her underwear was long gone. As biographer Stefan Canfer tells the story in his book, Ball of Fire, Ball was, quote, out of luck and out of money. So she took a job at a soda shop, but she was fired. And that's when she reached rock bottom. Her stomach grumbling, Ball started lingering around diners, waiting for patrons to toss down a tip and head for the door. By the time it shut behind them, Ball slid onto their stool. She scarfed down their leftovers and used the nickel on the table to order herself a coffee. But one night, she realized she only had four cents in her pocket. The bus home cost five. So she was forced to panhandle for a single penny. As taxis whizzed past her on the cold Manhattan street, she started to wonder if life was worth living. Ball realized she needed to make a change. Her plan to break into the business by way of kick lines and feathers wasn't panning out, so she scoured the Sunday papers for other opportunities. And that's when she came across a wand ad for a coat model. Ball figured if she was attractive enough to be a chorus girl, modeling mustn't be too far off. So she went to the audition, and amazingly, she was hired. That gig led to another, and soon she'd started a full-on freelance modeling career. Over the next couple years, Ball took on a series of odd jobs to make ends meet. Along with modeling, she sold makeup, ran an elevator at a department store, and worked at a pharmacy. She started living with a roommate to help cover her Manhattan rent. But as the 1920s morphed into the 30s, their paychecks stopped arriving in the mailbox. And Ball and her roommate realized they only had 25 cents between them. By 1932, Great Depression breadlines stretched city blocks. One in three New Yorkers was unemployed. Lucille Ball was one of them. Then, in the spring of 1933, something strange happened. Her phone started to ring. After months without a single job, suddenly she started getting offers for freelance and showroom modeling work. She couldn't believe it. Soon she was bringing in $100 per week, the equivalent of about $2,000 U.S. dollars today. Suddenly her photo was splashed across all of Manhattan, nabbing billboard real estate New York models only dream of. Times Square. So Ball made her way to Midtown to see herself at 14 feet tall. She stood on the sidewalk staring up at her ad. It sat directly above the Palace Theater, she wished her career had taken her there instead. But just then, out of nowhere, 
a woman's voice cut through the city noise. It was a theatrical agent Ball had met a couple times before, well-connected in both the modeling and acting worlds. She asked Ball why she was in Manhattan in July. Ball said, well, that's where the jobs are. But the woman said, not so. Apparently, Sam Goldwyn of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios needed 12 poster girls for a new movie. They'd cast all 12, but one just backed out. The job would require six weeks of work and paid $125 per week, plus a stipend. And just like that, Lucille Ball was off to Hollywood. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. When Ball arrived in Hollywood, she made her way to the film set where she met the other 11 poster girls. They were given bathing suits as costumes and instructed to stand in line for a formal inspection. As biographer Stefan Canfer tells the story, Sam Goldwyn had a, quote, notorious predilection for fuller-figured women, and Ball weighed 111 pounds soaking wet. Suffice it to say, he wasn't a fan. But as the movie's star, comedian and vaudevillian Eddie Cantor, made his way down the line, she saw an opportunity. While the other girls touched up their lipstick, Ball stealthily pulled out a tiny piece of red paper from her purse and started ripping it up into tiny circles, then placing them all over her face to look like measles. When Cantor reached Ball, he paused then burst out laughing. As he continued down the line, she heard him say, That ball dame, she's a riot. The job was to stand in the background, looking pretty. But Ball looked for opportunities to insert herself into the gag. When Cantor wanted to shoot a pie-in-the-face scene, she volunteered. If there was a scene requiring someone to fall into a pool, she volunteered. 
She even acted with a live crocodile. And eventually, the director rewarded her attitude with a few lines here and there. Six weeks turned into six months, and before she knew it, Lucille Ball was calling Tinseltown home. Between shooting days, Ball hitched rides on equipment trucks headed for sets on various lots. Then she'd stand in the wings at the ready in case a last-minute walk-on part became available. Over time, she observed the inner workings of set life and managed to use that new knowledge to land small roles in a few pictures. So small, they were uncredited. She says she was really just a part of the scenery, strolling past the camera in chiffon and feathers. Out of the 12 women hired for her first job in Hollywood, only four remained in Los Angeles. Eight, no doubt, defecting to their hometowns, beaten down by the business. By her 24th birthday, Ball had appeared in 10 films and received zero screen credits. While plumes and silk were great and all, what she really wanted was to be funny. So she made the most of her comedy chops between takes, making her fellow walk-ons, actors, and crew people laugh. It felt moot at the time, but when a casting director over at Columbia Pictures started asking former clients if they knew of any up-and-coming funny actors the studio should be looking into, two recalled her off-screen antics, and Columbia offered Ball a contract. It paid less than her current gig, but for a crack at comedy, Ball accepted. Columbia offered her the role of a dumb blonde in a Three Stooges movie. Canfer says the role involved being pelted with lemon meringue. They also squirted soda in her face. She says seltzer up the nose really hurts. But it was all worth it when Ball saw her name appear in the credits for the first time. She started getting put up for more and more slapstick comedies. But it wasn't long before word trickled down from the corner office that there were major budget cuts happening at Columbia. And Lucille Ball was let go. Desperate, Ball took the first job she could get, another showgirl gig. But it paid even less than Columbia. Instead of climbing the Hollywood ladder, she seemed to be sliding backwards. She tried lobbying writers and producers for work, offering to fill any anonymous role that crossed their desks. But the best she could get was a single line. She heard about a film called Stage Door. Every actress under 30 wanted to read for a part. Ball auditioned, but she was vetoed instantly. So she decided to change directions. If she couldn't land a breakout role in film, she needed to find a new outlet for her comedy. So she shifted her focus back to plays, including one called Hey Diddle Diddle. It did well, earning Ball positive reviews from critics. One praised her comedic timing. Another called her the slickest trick you ever saw in slacks. She started gaining the attention in theater she could only dream of in film. And with that success, the play was poised to move up and out to the big leagues. Broadway. It was all happening. But behind the scenes, 
complications with production became insurmountable. And before the curtain came up, Hey Diddle Diddle on Broadway was canceled. Lucille Ball was crushed. It felt like yet another dead end. Little did she know, her rave reviews caught the attention of that same casting director who had vetoed Ball for the role in Stage Door. They hadn't yet cast one of the parts, and she was asked back to the studio for a second audition. Ball was hired. It was a small role, but a huge deal. The biggest production her name had ever been associated with to date, a film starring Katherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers. Stage Door received three Academy Award nominations. Suddenly, the name Lucille Ball started floating around studios, and she started getting cast in B-level movies. Scripts began appearing in her mailbox, and it was enough momentum to sign her first-ever agent. She knew she was making a name for herself when a casting sheet for a film stated it was looking for a Lucille Ball type to play the female lead. So she made her way to the casting office and did a screen test. But she was rejected. They told her she was wrong for the role. By the late 1930s, Lucille Ball was known as Queen of the Bees. She was making enough money to cover her rent and even help out her family. She was lucky to land consistent work. But she was stuck in a rut. A-level movies, where the great parts, money, and acclaim was, felt completely out of reach. She tried for Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, but she blew the audition. One day, she was in New York promoting her latest B-movie, when she was told she simply had to go see a new Broadway musical called Too Many Girls. She wasn't sure what all the fuss was about, but she found her seat in the orchestra section and took in the first few scenes. They were all right, nothing to write home about. Then, one actor in particular stepped onto the stage and Ball sat up in her seat. Before he even spoke a word, she says she felt an electrifying charm about him, a star quality that couldn't be manufactured. His name was Desi Arnaz. As it turned out, the reason Ball was told she just had to go see too many girls was because the studio where she was under contract at the time had recently bought the rights to the screenplay to turn it into a film. And they had Ball in mind to play the lead role. But there was more good news. They also wanted the original stage actor, Desi Arnaz, to play her co-star. So back on the West Coast, the pair was formally introduced. He was six years younger than she was. But seven short hours later, they were on their very first date. Desi Arnaz was a Cuban actor and musician whose band became popular on the New York City club scene, where he caught the eye of theater producers, landing himself his first acting role in Too Many Girls. Ball says his eyes lit up the day they met. Their chemistry was undeniable. And six months later, they were married. 
When the film version of Too Many Girls was released, the New York Times had a few things to say about it. The review read, If the intention was to be impressive, it has failed. For Too Many Girls is a simple, conventional, rah-rah picture without any place for pretense. And there's not enough to it on the whole. Still queen of the bees, Ball continued appearing in movies consistently throughout the early 1940s. Look Who's Laughing, Valley of the Sun, and A Girl, A Guy, and a Gob, to name a few. But pollsters dubbed her unable to draw a box office crowd. Only 58% of audiences polled recognized her name. One critic put it simply, saying, Lucille Ball has low-voltage marquee strength. She landed one meaty role in a film called The Big Street. It barely broke even. But Ball earned rave reviews from the New York Herald Tribune, Time, and Life magazines, calling her performance superb. But it wasn't enough. Studios still weren't convinced Ball had long-range star potential. She was running in place. One day on the MGM lot, the studio's chief hairstylist looked at her and proclaimed, The hair is brown, but the soul is on fire. And he dyed her hair. He said the shade was called Tango Red, somewhere between a carrot and a strawberry. By 1946, MGM released Ball from her contract. The studio had no discernible screen identity to attach to the star. She was 36 years old, eclipsed by the latest slate of Hollywood ingenues. Her mental and physical health began to decline, and rumors about the stability of her marriage started circulating Hollywood. She landed roles like Zigfield Follies and Without Love, with good reviews, but her marquee strength remained low voltage. Then she was approached by CBS to play the wife character in a radio comedy series called My Favorite Husband. The series was based on a novel about a young banker and his socialite wife who had a penchant for placing him in awkward situations but who, in the end, quote, proved to be as lovable as she was frenetic. Ball was interested in the part, but she had one stipulation. She'd only accept the role if she could bring her real-life husband, Desi Arnaz, on board to play her on-air husband. Their marriage was struggling in more ways than one. With Ball constantly on set and Arnaz touring the country, they were constantly apart, making it difficult to maintain a relationship and stifling the prospect of starting a family. But CBS rejected her idea immediately. Ball was hired, and actor Richard Dennings was cast as her husband. The show tested positively, climbing in the ratings. The Hollywood Reporter penned a rave review of the series, adding, It's too bad that Lucille Ball's funny grimaces and gestures aren't visible on the radio. Meanwhile, Ball continued acting in films, including Miss Grant Takes Richmond and The Fuller Brush Girl, movies that made the most of her gift for physical comedy. But she says... With the exception of one or two pictures, the truth was, there was nothing on her resume that she really loved. 
she wasn't happy. And that's when she got an idea. At this point, Ball knew how the business worked. She'd paid her dues. It was time to create something of her own. So she thought, what if she pitched an original idea for a new show starring herself and Arnez? One that would allow them to work together and include the draw of TV spouses who were also real-life spouses. She knew it wouldn't be easy. They'd need funny writers, great scripts, and trusted producers. So she approached the trio of talented writers from My Favorite Husband and brought them on board. Then, Arnez and Ball made a monumental decision to create their own production company. They'd call it Desi Lu Productions. The pair started working on possible scenes together. Maybe Arnez was a serious band leader and Ball was one of his delinquent orchestra members. It could be a sketch comedy. And once they had a few scenes down pat, they decided to try their material in front of test audiences. First, at army bases, then at the Paramount Theater in Chicago. Every single joke landed. Audiences were cracking up, and word started to spread that the brand new Desilu Productions had a hit on its hands. Critics loved their act. Variety called them one of the best bills to play the house in recent months. And theaters started making the pair offers to appear on their stages. So they decided to strike while the iron was hot and make a pitch to CBS, the same studio behind My Favorite Husband, and see if they could get their act on television. But CBS wasn't so sure. There were two main concerns. Risk-averse executives feared audiences weren't ready for a Latino man in a, quote, domestic role. And CBS worried Lucille Ball was far too glamorous to play a housewife. Even Ball and Arnez's friends advised against the idea. But Ball was determined. And she started shopping the idea to studios. The pitch went a little something like this. Ricky Ricardo is a Latin American band leader and singer. His wife is Lucy Ricardo. They are happily married and very much in love. The only bone of contention between them is her desire to get into show business and his equally strong desire to keep her out of it. NBC showed only mild interest, but it was just enough. When CBS heard NBC might want in, they resurfaced and offered Desi Lu a deal. But Ball made some demands. She would pick the head writer. Arnez would not be recast. The show would be produced close to home in Hollywood, which, by the way, was an unusual request, as most television at the time was shot on the East Coast. And lastly, Desi Lu Productions would own 50% of the program. CBS agreed. They'd call the series, I Love Lucy. On March 2nd, 1951, they shot the pilot. CBS's head of programming took one look at the tape and said, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. He hated it, 
and now he was tasked with finding the show a sponsor. Weeks went by, and he couldn't turn the head of a single advertiser. He started offering a bargain, nearly half the price of a regular CBS program. Then, finally, just as he was about to give up on the series before it even began, they had a taker. Philip Morris Cigarettes. I Love Lucy was granted 39 episodes, after which Philip Morris had the power to either buy another season or pull the plug. And they were given their official time slot, Mondays at 9 p.m. On Monday, October 15, 1951, I Love Lucy premiered. Its time slot faced stiff competition, airing opposite NBC's hit drama Lights Out. After the episode aired, the president of Philip Morris Cigarettes called his advertising agency in a panic, asking how much it would cost him to pull the show off the air. He said the episode was unfunny, silly, and totally boring. The agency begged him to reconsider and urged the president to give it one more week. He begrudgingly agreed, but said that to be clear, they were delaying the inevitable. But the next week, viewership increased and increased and increased. And by the mid-season episode, the show had reached an audience of 10 million. And Monday nights were dubbed Lucy Time. By 1952, I Love Lucy became the top-rated TV show in the nation. With 2.9 million viewers per television set, each episode was seen by 30,740,000 people, nearly one-fifth of the entire U.S. population. Department stores started shutting down between 9 and 9.30, posting signs in their windows that read, We Love Lucy Too. Lucille Ball was nominated for an Emmy that year and landed the cover of Time magazine, where it was written that Ball takes being hit by pies, falling over furniture, and getting locked in freezers with unflagging zest. The Hollywood Reporter called Ball America's number one comedian and a consummate artist born for television. The following year, I Love Lucy held steady at number one, and President Dwight D. Eisenhower couldn't even keep up. The episode where Lucy gives birth to Little Ricky drew 15 million more viewers than the inauguration that same week, accounting for nearly 75% of all American TV homes. And Lucille Ball, the girl rejected from drama school who pinballed between studios fighting for parts with low-voltage marquee strength, told she just didn't have it and dubbed Queen of the Bees, became the queen of primetime television. While there are many razor-sharp edges to rejection, there is one in particular that causes the most damage of all. It's not the slammed doors, it's not the unreturned phone calls, it's not even the final no. 
It's the word said in between, because words are the shrapnel of rejection. Cruel and stinging words thrown out that don't only pierce your confidence, they pierce your heart. Lucille Ball heard it from teachers, casting directors, pollsters, directors, advertisers, and critics. She was told she had two left feet, that she just didn't have it, that she was too thin, wrong for the role, unable to draw a box office crowd, that she was wasting her time, that she was wasting their time, that she had low-voltage marquee strength. Those words can be bruising, cutting, and scarring, especially when spoken by the gatekeepers, the ones in charge, the people who are paid to spot talent. But Lucille Ball had a special kind of body armor. She wrapped her courage tightly around her dream, and she just kept going. Think about how wrong all those people were. When Lucy and Desi created I Love Lucy, it was a historic, pioneering, blockbuster hit. It was the first sitcom to reach number one in the Nielsen ratings. Season two had a rating of 67.3, which is still the highest average rating of a television show in history. Because Desi and Lucy insisted on shooting I Love Lucy on film instead of doing it live, they pioneered the concept of reruns and used that revenue to build Desi Lu Studios. Lucy would become the first woman to run a Hollywood studio when she bought Desi's shares in 1962. Desi Lu was one of the most successful television studios in Hollywood, producing legendary programs like The Andy Griffith Show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and Mission Impossible. And it was Lucille Ball who believed in and financed Star Trek. None of that staggering success would have happened if Lucy had let all those stinging criticisms puncture her dreams along the way. And it was a long way. Because... I Love Lucy didn't happen until Lucille Ball was 40 years old. Never, ever give up. I Love Lucy, Seasons 6, Emmy Awards 4. First ever television Hall of Fame inductee, Lucille Ball. Annual viewership to this day, 40 million. Longest uninterrupted laugh in a sitcom, 65 seconds. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. We regret to inform you our series researcher is Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is Ball of Fire, The Tumultuous Life and Comic Art of Lucille Ball by Stefan Canfer. Follow us on social at Apostrophe Pod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.